You're listening to OT Uncorked. I'm your host, Miranda Rennie. On OT Uncorked, we uncork hot topics in occupational therapy and a bottle of wine. Today, you'll hear an interview with Amanda Jaskowski, a pediatric occupational therapist who has been working with an interprofessional team to develop assistive technology for young children. If you've ever considered developing a product or working with professionals outside of healthcare, you'll want to listen closely and get your notepad ready. If you've been following OTN Court, you may have noticed that there haven't been as many episodes lately in your queue. A lot of exciting life changes have happened since posting the last episode with Amanda Wiles in the Passion Meets Paycheck miniseries, and those life changes have had an impact on OTN Court. I really want to get into this fabulous interview with Amanda Jaskowski, so I'll let her take it away, but please keep listening at the end of the episode for a quick update. So um, I'm Amanda Jaskowski, and I am an assistant professor of occupational therapy and occupational science at Towson University. Um, That's just north of Baltimore. Um, My kind of primary areas that I tend to teach in are research methods, statistics, um, assessment, and I also teach some of the pediatrics courses. And um, my kind of training and clinical background is also in pediatrics. And so I've worked in several different kind of outpatient um, facilities and um, primarily kind of the traditional sensory motor gym type um, situation. But I also see several children um, from time to time in their homes if they're particularly medically fragile um, and also have gotten the opportunity to do some um, telehealth um, because for that reason as well. So um if a child is not able to come to the clinic or also because um, sometimes I might be traveling or maybe farther away um, than they live um, to be convenient, then um, I'm able to work with them um, online and have another therapist there present to kind of help carry out some of my treatment plans, which has been really exciting. So you have a lot going on as far as OT-related ventures. I'm wondering how you've combined your clinical interest and background into your research. Yeah, sure. So um, definitely all my research has um, had children and youth as a focus and also has incorporated technology to some extent. So even back to my dissertation was looking at active video games and how that related to physical activity and enjoyment and kind of... um, the experience of playing together versus playing alone and what that meant for um, sociality and so forth. Um, But currently my two kind of major projects are um, developing a play-based pediatric assessment tool and it's a multidisciplinary tool. So it is um, designed to actually be used um, by OT, PT and speech practitioners. And, um, Again, it's play-based, so it's really kind of fun, meant for younger kids, you know, meant to not feel like the traditional assessment where, you know, sit down and draw on this line or stand up and do some jumping jacks or show me some push-ups, but um, kind of follows a storyline and and feels a little bit more naturalistic and really helps build rapport. 
Um, so we've undergone a number of rounds of testing on that and are just kind of continuing refinements and looking to hopefully do kind of some larger scale testing and, and standardization um, now that we have a formal manual and so forth with that um, a mobile version of the assessment tool with the idea being that, you know, therapists can carry around, you know, a small tablet and be doing the scoring and also showing example videos or images to the child um, in the course of testing, perhaps even taking some images of their own kind of as evidence throughout the testing. And then of course it includes all the auto scoring and those components on the back end that just make things a little bit easier um, utility wise for the therapist. So um, that was also a collaboration with um, several graduate students in computer science at Towson. So that's been fun to have that actually be part of their master's thesis projects. Um, and also, of course, a great benefit to me in, in the development of the t- tool. Definitely. And I noticed this current of technology in many of the projects you're working on and that you've worked on in the past, mm-hmm. as well as this theme of collaboration. And both of these are areas where I think as OT practitioners, we have a lot of opportunity for growth. So I'm really excited to hear more about your perspective on both of these pieces. But before we get any further, I want to know what wine are you enjoying as we talk tonight? Yeah, so tonight I am drinking um, Bogle Vineyards Essential Red 2016, um, and it's an old vine blend. Now, is this one you've had before or are you trying a new one tonight? I haven't actually had this particular blend, but I've had a number from Bogle that I like and I, bread blends are really popular right now. Um, and I know that I like the kind of old vine um, flavor profile. So that's something that I was interested in, but I haven't had this particular bottle. Well, I'm excited to hear what you think about it at the end of the episode. So I have been trying to do this thing where I make the wine somehow loosely relate to the topic of the show. So it never works, but I'm going to try it again. The wine I'm drinking tonight is called Beauty in Chaos. It's a 2016 red blend too, actually. Um, And it's from the Columbia Valley in Washington state. And I chose it because I know in this episode, we're talking a lot about issues of collaboration and technology And my experience with both of those things has been, there's a lot of chaos, um, but there's also a lot of beauty in it and a lot of value. So that is my stretch of how my wine relates to the topic. And we'll touch base at the end of the show to see what we think of these two wines. Okay, fantastic. Well, you also, um, I'm a Washington girl, born and bred, so you picked a Washington wine, which is great. You know, it's kind of funny because when I was at the store picking this wine out, I saw it was from Washington and something in my mind connected that to you, but I kind of (laughs) thought I'd made it up. So that is really awesome that you are from Washington. That's a much better connection than the beauty and chaos one. (laughs) There you go. So we were talking about how you're using technology in a lot of your current projects And that's led to some collaboration with people outside of occupational therapy. And I'm curious what that progression looked like, because from what my understanding is, you don't have a a strong background in tech necessarily. It's it's actually pretty funny. Um, I, when I started the PhD program at USC, um, I was really thinking that my focus was going to be on um, interventions in the outdoors and looking at kind of play in nature and, um, 
that was really one of my my strong interests. And I had done a lot of work, you know, working at summer camps and just being outside. And I was an aquatics director for several summers. And um, I ended up working with video games, which was really something that I had no experience in. But um, because I was interested in working with young adults with autism, that seemed like a really particularly relevant topic and something that I knew would kind of be attractive as um, a modality. And so um, that was how I kind of got into it. And then I just think that, you know, getting into the profession um, and especially academia at the time that I did, it's just kind of when tech was exploding, all sorts of assistive technology, but just, you know, technology being used for teaching. And um, so it just seemed like kind of an opportune thing. Um, and just where a lot of what's going on in the the profession is going. Okay. So those opportunities and that sort of shift in direction of our field then resulted in you working with some more kind of technical experts, right? So I know you mentioned a few projects that you're working on, but you are involved in quite a lot right now. So I'd love for you to tell us about what else you're working on and what has you excited right now. Sure. So um, probably my primary project right now, um, at least for this current year, has been working on um, an assistive technology application that we call YCAT, which stands for Young Children's Assistive Technology. And it's got several components to it. It was initially conceived um, because I was working with a young child who had spinal muscular atrophy. And um, with that condition, it's a um, neurodegenerative disease, neuromuscular condition, similar to like a muscular dystrophy. And so um, he had very limited movement, you know, um, utilize a trach ventilator and so forth. And, um, but there's no limitations to his cognition. And his family came to me and said, you know, we have no way to communicate with him, but we, we know he understands us. He's able to make some vocalizations, but can't actually, um, form words with his mouth because of his very limited musculature. And um, so, you know, what can we do? And I really, like I said, didn't have a lot of background in assistive technology or communication applications at all. Um, But what I found when I looked at the options was there was kind of these, you know, very basic like PEX-based communication boards where, you know, you maybe tap a couple of images or yes, no is placed on your um, wheelchair tray, something like that, or you had these very high-tech, very complex um, devices that were proprietary, had their own software, cost you know upwards of ten thousand dollars, and were pretty much not very user-friendly for the families. You know, required lots and lots of intensive training with um, speech pathologists and assistive tech coordinators and so forth. The other thing was that a lot of those types of devices. Well, you know, they had the capacity for a lot of um, learning and helping with language acquisition and so forth. And people can really communicate with really um, wonderful accuracy and so forth. Um, A lot of times those, those devices were only offered through the school. And so children that were earlier than school age just didn't have access to anything like that. Um, And so I wasn't seeing that there was anything on the market, especially that was kind of um, had good ease of use and um, 
was available to people kind of off the shelf um, that was really geared toward children, uh, maybe age five and below. And so um, we just kind of, I cold called several computer science professors at Towson and I said, hey, you know, I looked up on our website and saw that you had some experience in something related to assistive technology, whether that is kind of um, interface design or um, other applications. And so two of them responded and said, yeah, you know, let's get together and meet and talk about what you might be interested in. And that was several years ago. Um, So since then, we've worked with quite a few um, graduate students in computer science, the two faculty members, Dr. Fung and Dr. Tong, um, myself, and then several graduate students in occupational therapy, as well as several graduate students in speech language pathology. Um, So we've developed first a web-based application and, um, or I should say first a website and then um, a mobile application version of this kind of communication device or software. Um, And it's got a number of different components that I think are really exciting and I think really clearly shows how um, OT played a large role in the development. Um, Again, you know, I have no experience in programming or anything like that, have really had to educate myself even on things like, you know, what are the design features of a website that might be attractive to children, for example. Um, And we had to run several rounds of early studies just to demonstrate things like, well, we think that children probably prefer a touchscreen with swiping capability, but we don't have any evidence to back that up. So let's test out the difference between swiping and using a traditional laptop, um, things like that. So we did some of that type of work. Um, We've also built in integration with a lot of smart home technologies, which I think is really cool. Um, And that's something that is pretty unique to this device compared to some of the other um, AAC devices on the market. So it's integrated with Amazon Echo and several other smart home features like light bulbs and so forth um, to really help give the child control of their environment. And um, it also kind of increases what we've found, um, increases motivation and engagement with the application so that they really want to kind of stay using it. Um, which is really exciting. So even from the beginning, when you were first really exploring this idea for your product, you had to start from the ground up, it sounds like, and figure out how every piece fits together to make it a great user experience, which I definitely think is within our wheelhouse as occupational therapy practitioners, but it still sounds like a new application of your skills would be a challenge. Sure. And really would cause you to have to branch out into other fields. Now, before you mentioned that you kind of cold called these other researchers mm-hmm. and that resulted in a meeting, but what was the experience like of describing what you wanted to do and communicate those OT specific goals with people who maybe think differently or whose goals are going to look just a little bit different than ours? Yeah. I mean, that's a huge piece of this. Um, I think, you know, that first meeting, we kind of sat down and I described the problem and and the case of this particular child that I described um, and talked about, you know, here are some of the priorities for the family. In particular, we're interested in it being, um, you know, something that is not cost prohibitive, something that is even, you know, they, they were just saying, we want something that's durable. We haven't found anything that, you know, we're not afraid to knock off the shelf every five seconds. Um, 
something that allows them to interact with us, but that, but that also doesn't set up a barrier between the child and us was something that was really important. So they gave the example of like, you know, if we're sitting and eating dinner, we don't want there to be a giant screen in front of my child's face. Um, we want him to be able to interact and see our faces and so forth. So there, is there a way that we can um, allow him to use a screen-based communication device that doesn't set it up in that manner? Um, so we talked through a number of those different um, components that were desirable from the family perspective. Um, but then I think what was really the most helpful was I actually asked this family if I could bring the team down. And so they could just really get a sense of what does it look like for your daily life. And that was something that I think had so much impact. I mean, both of the computer science professors just walked away from that experience and they said, you know, we've never actually interacted with the user. We develop these products, we put them out, we hope people like them, um, but we've never really seen like what are some of the barriers, what are some of the um, challenges to set up and and so forth, and just kind of seeing this child and his home and interacting with his family, I think it really helped them understand. Um, but then also, you know, having me there to kind of interpret um, for them what was going on, what they were seeing, um, was also really helpful. So yeah, that was that was really, I think, a great move to start, so that we could all kind of come from the same place. Um, and then pretty quickly, you know, they kind of got to work on just building out some very basic websites so that we could kind of, like I said, practice or test certain um, components. So one of the things that we were looking at initially was, can we also integrate um, some sensors in the home environment? So for example, down the line, um, if you had a sensor that was placed near the threshold to the kitchen and the child move toward the kitchen in their wheelchair, um, perhaps the screen on the communication device would pull up the kitchen options automatically. So building in some, again, some of these kind of smart features. Um, so to do that, we didn't have to have a whole communication device to start. We just had, you know, a very simple website that had, you know, like a little bear and then a floating box. And then you had to make sure, could the box go over the bear accurately, you know, things like that. And that's the type of stuff that I really didn't understand at the start. You know, how do you kind of go about testing these different ideas to see if they work and what's kind of needed to um, go through kind of all the steps of then putting together a more polished product. Um, so yeah, that, that was great. Um, I think, you know, there have been several challenges to the whole process. Um, I think, you know, in particular with this team, not only the fact that we come from wildly different disciplines, certainly, and, you know, have, have very different um, language of our profession, there were also um, language barriers and cultural differences. Um, both of the professors I'm working with are Chinese. They're fantastic, and they are both um, much higher ranking and more experienced than I am in academia. Um, but I think even just understanding what, you know, how to communicate expectations as far as timelines and, um, you know, I think as far as their discipline, um, there's some very different processes that are at play. So I learned, for example, that, you know, in computer science, it is very common to publish 
pretty much constantly while you're developing a product. And so, you know, we did one little paper on just testing out the switches that we might have used with the eventual website. Then we did a whole paper just on kind of backend architecture of the website before it even had anything to look at, right? Um, and, you know, I think for us, um, when you're thinking about publication, you kind of have to wait until the product, so to speak, is the functional outcome. And so that was way down the line. Um, you know, we've had multiple iterations of this website and now recently this app. Um, and I still don't feel like I have a whole lot to report other than maybe some of these initial tests um, where we were looking at maybe child's preferences um, related to the website design and also their ability to learn to navigate the different sites. And so kind of how efficient are they at finding different commands and so forth. Um, so learning effects and usability and all of that. But, um, you know, so far we haven't even gotten to the point of having children really use this product in their everyday life, which is really the part that I'm the most excited about. And um, so I'm holding my breath a little bit for those results, but also being able to disseminate them. Whereas I think in computer science, like I said, it's kind of this continuous process and it's okay to share something that's um, still being developed and isn't perfect yet, um, which is something that was new to me, but also kind of exciting to see that, you know, we can just put, put our stuff out there and get some feedback and um, I, I kind of really like that model and it's, it's different than what I was used to in our profession. Wow. While you were talking, I was just thinking that might be really beneficial for promoting innovation in OT because I think you're right. We read studies that have been in process for years and years mm -hmm. and you can only showcase so much in one or two manuscripts, which is great because it's usually about functional outcomes and we love functional outcomes, right? That's kind of what we do. <laughs> but what do you think this would look like if we applied that kind of model to our field to kind of share more works in progress? Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure the best venue for that. Um, certainly there have been in the last several years, more opportunities for that at conferences where we have research works in progress and so forth, um, or, you know, late breaking findings and things like that. But, um, you know, I think especially having published in, um, some areas of technology, um, with my video game research and so forth, it's also just been frustrating knowing that, you know, the moment that you write the paper, the technology itself is already three years too old, right? Yeah. And so it's nice having this mechanism in computer science where we can kind of be constantly putting things out um, because technology is just changing so quickly. In fact, we were just working on kind of a market study related to this project to understand, you know, how is our product different from what's available and really very clearly articulating all of the really exciting features of it, but also assessing you know, what's available out there, who are our competitors, so to speak. And I just had my research assistant go back and kind of do another round of that this um, over the past several weeks. And several of the features that we thought were unique to our uh, design are now available in several oh. other products. And the last time we updated that was maybe six months ago. So that's frustrating, but it's also, I think, really exciting because it shows that we're on the right track. And um you know, that people are thinking more about 
the user a little bit. And, um, you know, because we started from this very kind of grassroots needs assessment, talking to the SMA community, um, attending some of their conferences, obviously working um, directly with one specific family um, and hearing from them what they wanted. I think that, you know, I've always felt really confident that what we have developed is something that would be useful to folks. Um, but I'm excited to see that some of the larger companies are also incorporating some of those features that um, families are calling for. That is reassuring that they're headed in the right direction. Now, you've mentioned a handful of what I would call pearls or those really good things mm-hmm. that come out of tough challenges. I think one that you mentioned already was just bringing those computer science researchers into the family's environment and actually introducing them to the family and their needs. I can imagine that was eye-opening experience. But what other pearls have come out of this project that give you hope in interprofessional collaboration? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I think... um whether it's computer science or, you know, technology related or not, anytime you're working with an interdisciplinary team, um, you know, there's a huge benefit to just having a wide range of perspectives and coming at a problem from multiple angles. So this week we just had a um, research meeting with the YCAT team to kind of um, see where we're at after the summer break. And um, I was talking about how I'm going to have, 11 of the occupational therapy graduate students actually bringing YCAT into the homes of families of children with communication challenges this year. And so really seeing how they use this product kind of in their daily lives. Um, And that we were looking at, you know, doing a a combination of interviews and observations and some questionnaires. And they said, well, why don't we just put some survey questions into the app itself? And then at the end of the night, when they're done, it'll just pop up. And it'll automatically collect that data and we'll be able to shoot that back to you. And I said, oh, you know, that's just not something that I ever would have thought. And they said, oh, that's like easy, not a problem at all. Um, Just send us the questions you want, you know. (laughs) Um, So it was great to just have somebody be able to provide that solution where I was thinking, okay, you know, we're going to have to have students come in and send a survey and then come back and collect it and make sure that they're answering correctly. And, you know, all of these different things and, oh, well, we'll just build it into the app. Um, You know, but then there's also times that we've made suggestions kind of from the OT side that um, I think the computer science folks similarly were just kind of struck by the simplicity of it, but how useful it might be. So for example, We talked about the fact that having several buttons available on all screens, like a yes, no, and an I need help, um, would be something that you would want to follow the child no matter where they navigated through the program. Um, So, and we talked about the fact that, you know, could you even build in some kind of protections where if the child did indicate I need help, so they're able to immediately access that button without having to go to another screen, but also um, somebody would need to acknowledge it. So meaning that it would kind of continuously signal, I need help, I need help, I need help until a caregiver, a nurse, you know, a family member, somebody came and actually kind of turned that off. Um, And that way on the back end, um, you could also track kind of how long that help signal was activated and so forth and um, monitor, you know, how frequently the child was asking for assistance, things like that. So um, 
that was, again, pretty easy to actually program in. Um, but something that the computer science folks never would have thought of would be useful or, or desirable. Um, but, you know, in addition to just kind of having a range of perspectives, I think that being on a team like this, there is this sense of shared leadership and also shared responsibility. So we have to kind of trust each other that we all have our own areas of expertise. And that if I say, hey, I'd like you to try to add this feature, um, I'm trusting that they know what they're doing and that they're going to be able to carry it out kind of in the timeline that's agreed to. And I really have no control over that. Um, but we're all kind of in it together. We, you know, it's in our best interest that we all follow through. And, um, but also, you know, I think along with that is trusting yourself in your expertise. That's something that I've found to be really valuable and to actually give me a lot of confidence in this process is being able to articulate what I need and what is the perspective from kind of as a spokesperson of my profession almost. Um, and it's, it almost is, has been an experience like being back in field work as an OT student where, you know, your supervisor is kind of constantly asking you, what is your reasoning for this? And asking you to really clearly talk you through your thought process. And, um, so kind of being forced to do that at all times with somebody who is not, you know, native to the language of OT and the perspective of occupation um, has also, I think, helped me solidify what I think about things and um, being really confident in answering kind of from an occupation-based perspective and being, you know, trying to be evidence-based and client-centered as much as possible because both of those things are not necessarily, again, um, within the wheelhouse of um, some of these other disciplines. So um, I think, you know, trusting yourself, your expertise, um, but also trusting others has, has been really helpful um, and, and definitely a learning experience too. Well, and that advice and that example you gave is reminding me of some of the conversations I was having this past year at AOTA annual conference and expo. I was hearing this common theme among OTs and OTAs that they have this interest in pursuing entrepreneurial ventures or mm -hmm. they're looking at corporate positions a lot of times in rehab technologies, even in user experience type things like you were mentioning at the beginning. And I really do think this is a cool opportunity for OT practitioners. And I really felt this urge among the people I was talking with at AOTA. Um, I mean, it's quite possible. It's just the people I surround myself with. But at least among them, there was an interest in pursuing these things. But at the same time, there was this struggle of how do I justify my seat at the table as an mm -hmm. OT practitioner and really show that I have the expertise to share with this group and to move these goals forward. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like you have developed that confidence. And so as a first step for the rest of us, I think we could probably learn a lot from you and your experience. So do you have any other pieces of advice of how you got to that point? You know, was it trial by error? You know, what did that process look like for you? Um, I, I think more trial by fire than trial and error. <laughs> um, I think that by nature, you know, a lot of OTs, we are very, you know, we're holistic, we're nurturing, we want everybody to succeed, we want to, you know, provide accommodations when, when necessary and possible. Um, 
And, you know, I think we are inherently collaborative and, and maybe don't necessarily feel comfortable taking the principal leadership role. Um, but, you know, I was kind of the originator of this project in particular that we've been speaking about. And so um, necessarily I kind of had to take the lead as far as, you know, the vision and what were the next steps in the process and all of that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it hasn't come naturally for sure, but with practice and, and again, I think this opportunity to really kind of continuously be sharing our work has really helped with that as well. So we were fortunate to um, receive some funding from the Mid-Atlantic CIO Forum. And um, so this is a group of um, business leaders. So it's the chief information officers for some large companies um, regionally. And um, they were in particular interested in supporting kind of emerging technologies, but also um, that pulled in students. And so the fact that we had students on our team consistently was really attractive to them. But um, as part of that funding, we were asked to frequently report back to them. And so I would come to their um, biannual meetings and talk about where we were at with the process and give some examples. And um, that was really, really helpful for me to just go through the practice of kind of, you know, refining my little elevator speech, but also um, trying to connect folks to the story and kind of see the long-term potential and impact because something like developing a website or an app is, is not an immediate process. And like I said, you know, we still don't have functional outcomes, so to speak at this point. Um, we're moving closer and closer to that, but um, helping them kind of understand the vision has also been really helpful for me. Um, and I think also recently in this movement toward um, doing this kind of marketing study, um, that's really helped us refine also what our message has been and seeing kind of where we are in relation to others. I mean, for a long time, this project was just kind of based on the fact that somebody asked us to design something for them. Um, but now we can see this, this seems to have broader application. I mean, we worked with several children with um, speech and language challenges last year um, and just brought it to them three times for half an hour with their family in the room and, you know, showed them a few of the different features and asked them to perform a couple tasks, um, but also just had them kind of play around and see what they could find and, and get some reaction from the families. And we had families, these are families who are getting therapy five days a week for their children. And they said, my child's never said that to me, you know? And so the fact that in 90 minutes, we could get that type of response was just so motivating too. And really I think helped us connect back to our original um, reason for doing the project, because I think sometimes we can get mucked up in all of this, you know, putting in an intellectual property protection and you know, um, the, the programming side of things. But um, it was really great to, to see the human impact, which is of course the, the most rewarding piece for me. Wow, that's really moving. Um, I won't get into great detail here, but the reason I actually wanted to be an OT in the first place was because my best friend had a communication barrier because of a really rare condition that presents somewhat similarly to SMA, mm -hmm. actually. 
And her OT was the first one who gave her a way to communicate and show that she was learning in school and, you know, had ideas she wanted Mm -hmm. to share. I mean, we knew she had a lot to say and we communicated with her in our own ways, but her OT gave her a way to formally communicate with other people. So that's what brought me to OT. And it's just really special that you're doing that for more families. Oh, yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. And I mean, again, even just the idea of kind of communication being one of the main outcomes of this is is also not an area that was particularly comfortable to me or something that I had a lot of training in. Um, but I think also this idea of, you know, integrating with the smart home components and so forth. Um, not only does it make it kind of a clever product, but it also pulls in that occupation piece, which has been really important to me. But certainly, I mean, communication also is, as we know, directly tied to social participation and, you know, just general kind of inclusion and all sorts of other areas of occupation that are so important. I think that your story and experiences can inspire other OTs and OTAs to pursue innovation maybe outside of their clinical role or even just work with other professionals outside of their patient care settings. And I'm wondering if you have any next steps for them where they can kind of start this process in their own lives. I think, you know, identifying if there are particular organizations that might have some overlap. So I know right when I started this project, I um, was fortunate to be able to attend the ATIA, which is um, Assistive Technology Industry Association conference. And the first year that I went, it was almost exclusively people in rehab engineering, kind of the the tech side of things, um, and then speech therapists. Um, and there was just a couple OTs sprinkled in. Um, you know, Roger Smith, of course, being the um, most prominent of those. And um, I, I made sure that I attended all of his sessions, um, but it really felt like, like a minority and like, gosh, you know, there's so many exciting things going on in this area that OT could so easily articulate with. Um, and I was shocked. And even in the several years since I've attended that conference, OT has been much more represented more recently Um, But it was neat to find that there are organizations that have people like those um, computer science folks and people who are working kind of on the rehab and function side um, coming together. ResNush, certainly the Rehab Engineering Society of North America is another one of those um, that I think makes a lot of sense for people that are interested in this area in particular. But I would say, you know, no matter what area of practice or research you're looking in, seeing if there are organizations or conferences or journals that that have some sort of an overlap so that you have some sort of a, you know, shared space even to just have those conversations um, can be really helpful. So much of what you just said aligns with an article I was reading in the Harvard Business Review. It's called Eight Ways to Build Collaborative Teams, written by Linda Gratton and Tamara Erickson. And in it, they were talking about some of the challenges that people face when they try to work on interprofessional teams and collaborate with people who think differently than them and maybe have a different professional language or goals, which is kind of what we've been talking about here. And I thought it was funny. They identified 
large, diverse, virtual, and highly educated team members as crucial for challenging projects. Mm -hmm. But then they also identify those exact same four things as the biggest hurdles to getting stuff done on these teams. It's interesting. Uh, And I think it kind of relates to some of your experiences and how those factors helped push your project forward. But some of their solutions also relate to what you were saying. They suggest getting close to the people you want to work with, which makes a lot of sense, right? Going to those conferences, really starting up conversations with people that Mm -hmm. you might not typically speak with, but who really have a lot to contribute. And when you think about it, you know, diversity is great and we really want to promote it. But at the end of the day, people still have a tendency to gravitate towards those who think a lot like them, right? Yeah. Well, and I think that, um, Oftentimes I've found that, you know, there's this kind of tension between needing to speak up and, you know, represent my profession or my point of view, but also communicating effectively. And um, that things that may seem very obvious to us um, as occupational therapists aren't obvious necessarily to the general public or people from, you know, other highly specialized disciplines. And, um, you know, sometimes just saying what you think, even if it doesn't seem revolutionary, can be revolutionary for them and can really create a connection and a lot of opportunity. Um, And I I mean, I found that certainly um, going to these conferences, as you say, you know, sometimes just asking a question in a different way or framing it slightly differently, um, you know, I could see people in the room like, oh, huh, that's a little bit different than I would have thought. Um, that's really interesting. And I had people come up to me and say, you know, oh, what's your background? Because I didn't necessarily even identify myself as an OT. Um, so, you know, again, that does take a certain level of confidence. And I think that some of that purely was just, as I said, kind of this trial by fire mentality of just like, I'm going to jump in and see what happens. And I don't have a whole lot to lose at this point. Um, you know, I don't know a lot of people here, so I might as well make a fool of myself and see what comes of it. Um, but I think just having that kind of proactive approach really has served me well and, and helped to create a lot of connections and, and just also help kind of expose other people to this, what I think is just such a valuable, um, and powerful way of thinking, which is just, you know, um, this occupation, occupational lens. So you went out of your professional scope and, group, you went to a conference where maybe being an OT puts you in the minority and you got to hear how other people thought Mm -hmm. and vice versa, hopefully, about the issues. And Mm -hmm. it sounds like you started to forge some of those relationships, even just on the level of meeting people at a conference and sharing ideas. Um, And that's what this article was really suggesting, right? This cross-pollination of ideas, which is ultimately going to spur on innovation. And speaking of innovation, I really want to ask you about something kind of different, but I think it's still related, maker culture. I know that's something that you're interested in. I'm curious what role that plays in your research and the projects that you're working on. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, maker culture is really just kind of this, um, I don't know, initiative um, or, or orientation toward 
um, you know, the DIY, a lot of things that are going right on right now where people are just kind of getting back into whether you want to call it, you know, the arts and crafts movement or just um, people providing for themselves and being maybe a little bit more independent, almost libertarian type orientation to some extent. Um, But also I think just realizing that, you know, maybe we don't have to buy thousand dollar products that are specialty from a catalog when we could kind of figure it out on our own and do these kind of life hack type approaches um, and generate something, whether it's through, you know, 3D printing or just using the materials available to you, you know, if it's cardboard or, you know, old soda bottles or whatever it is to make something that's really useful. And I just, I think that that is such a natural fit with OT. I think that's what we've been doing all along is, you know, using what we have and being really creative. And now I think other people are kind of, you know, they're not maybe calling it the same thing that we might within the profession, but seeing that, okay, you know, like let's problem solve, let's do some task analysis, let's figure out what do we need to do? What do we have available to us? And how can we kind of put those things together and use maybe multiple people's expertise to kind of inform different aspects of the design process? Um, and so that's kind of the idea around a maker space is that you have people coming together and, you know, some people might be good at video editing and some people might be good at operating a 3D printer or programming. And some people might be really good at maybe the artistic creative side of things and making something look really beautiful and actually, um, attractive so that folks want to use it. Um, And so I just like this idea of people coming together and kind of just problem solving at a very grassroots level um, and that it doesn't necessarily take a lot of money and resources. You know, a lot of these kind of maker space or maker um, organizations will have events similar to like a hackathon idea where it's like, here's the problem. Let's figure out something that we can do to solve it. Um, Let's create something together. And I think it also fits really well with this orientation that I see um, in occupational science and occupational therapy research, which is toward this very participatory approach where we're actually, you know, working with communities. We're not swooping in as the saviors and the experts to say, here's what you need, but we're asking, what do you need? How can we help you generate that? And that I think aligns really closely with maker culture as well. Yeah. And you shared about a few projects that seem to reflect that approach. So I'm excited to see where that continues to take you. Now I have to ask because I'm already anticipating the emails from listeners asking when and how they can get YCAT. So can you give us an update on availability beyond your research? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard to say. We don't have a solid date of, you know, when can you have this software? But I will say that we are actively in the process right now of seeking. Um, we're doing an invention disclosure with the university, which is kind of the first step of intellectual property protection. And um, beyond that, we're really, I think where we're going to end up is probably selling the different design components and ideas that make up YCAT and make it unique to a similar company that might be interested in incorporating those features into an existing product. Um, And that's purely because at a university like mine, we really don't have necessarily um, 
the resources to be able to kind of run a really slick operation where we're doing lots of, you know, backend IT support and all of that. Um, but I think that what we have is unique. And so we want it to be out there. And our goal has always been to just get it out there. Um, we're not interested in making money off of it. It's going to be available. Um, and that's something that we're, we're really committed to. It's going to be available, the software itself for free, highly customizable, you know, to the extent that families can go in, you know, hold up their iPad, take a picture, and then insert the picture of that item or location into the app itself so that a child can actually see something that is theirs, not just a, you know, clip art image of it. Um, those types of things, adding in their own voices or the voices of their family members, recording messages, all of those types of things. Um, the only thing that I would foresee having maybe a um, monetary component would be perhaps if folks wanted to subscribe to some sort of a support um, mechanism. So if they wanted to have kind of ongoing support and updates, um, that might be something that they would need to pay for. But again, I'm, I'm thinking that we probably won't run that in-house and that it will probably be managed by um, some sort of more formal tech company. <laughs> um, but I, I would say that within the next two years or so is probably realistic to have this available to people um, in the app store and, and so forth. That's really not all that far away. It's not. <laughs> I mean, I know you've been in this process for a while, but that's exciting. It'll be available soon. Um, I also really appreciate your commitment to making it accessible not just in the literal sense, which is at the core of what you're doing, but also financially. And I know that's something the families are going to really appreciate too. Well, thank you. And I mean, I don't think that we, you know, are claiming that this is something that is um, going to solve all the world's problems or allow people to communicate really in a very complex way um, as they might have to do kind of in a more academic setting. And that's, that's where those fantastic products that are already available, they, that's their kind of um, wheelhouse. But this is something that people could use in their homes, set up easily, families wouldn't feel intimidated by, you know, it's really to kind of fill that gap. And, and in particular for the really young kiddos that, that there's not a lot available for. Well, Amanda, you have given me a lot to think about, and I'm sure the listeners are also going to really benefit from this conversation so many OTs and OTAs are really creative and have great ideas. So hearing about your journey is a really great example of how we can move those ideas forward. And part of that is collaborating with people outside of our immediate discipline or setting. So shifting gears just a little bit, I love to read and I always enjoy getting to know people by asking them what they're reading right now. <laughs> So I'm curious if you have any book recommendations for us. Sure. So um, as I mentioned uh, at the start, I do primarily teach research methods, statistics, and measurement. Um, and so I've just been really excited by this mixed methods research textbook recently. Said like a true professor. <laughs> um, sounds kind of funny, but I have to say that if you are at all interested in mixed methods, um, I really want to strongly recommend um, an introduction to fully integrated mixed methods research. It's by um, Elizabeth Creamer, and it's a 2018 text. Um, and so she's a um, in educational psychology, I believe. Um, 
at Virginia Polytechnic Institute and, you know, has published pretty um, extensively in methodologies and particular mixed methods. But I just love how kind of practical, easy to understand. All of her examples are just on point. Um, She has a number of um, examples that are particular to healthcare research. And um, I think that, you know, mixed methods is clearly uh, the ideal methodology for um, research in occupational therapy and occupational science. And so um, this has just been a really nice way to kind of um, give a give a really strong rationale for for selecting that type of methodology um, and talking about it in a way that is again accessible to students, people that aren't uh, conducting research but that are maybe um, beneficiaries of that research and um, you know potential funders and and everyone. I just can't recommend it highly enough. So I, I love that text. <laughs> um, that's my nerdy recommendation. <laughs> well, I do love a good nerdy textbook book recommendation. So that's great. Is there any other book that you're excited about right now? Yeah, um, I would say uh, most recently. So I actually can't remember the last time I, I read a book, um, a paper book, um, just because I don't have a lot of time for that. But I am incredibly dedicated to try to consume as much literature as possible. Um, and whether it's fiction or nonfiction. And so I, I have, um, almost an hour commute, um, in each direction. And so I do lots and lots of audiobooks. Um, and I also consume those while working out and cleaning the house and all sorts of things as well as podcasts. Um, so most recently I've just finished lab girl. Finally, that's, um, hope Jaren's book. Um, so she's a in biogeoscience, I believe, um, and it's just it's a memoir about kind of being an, a woman in science, in academia, working through the process of you know going up for tenure and all of that. So that's particularly relevant to my own experience, but also you know reflecting on working with students and building a lab and a space that is yours and developing confidence to talk about your ideas and test things out. And she talks a lot about failure, um, which I think is really inspiring. And, um, you know, this is, this is a book lab girl has been on pretty much everybody's top reading list in the last year, um, including Obama's. <laughs> so I don't think that it will be, um, super new to some of your listeners, but I will just add to the chorus of voices saying that it is definitely, um, a worthwhile read or listen, if that's the way that you consume your your books. And, and I think, um, the last one that I would recommend is just for anybody that is particularly interested in technology and kind of, um, its articulation with occupational therapy would be to go back and revisit, um, Roger Smith's, uh, 2017 Eleanor Clark's Lego lecture. Um, so that was the one that was given at the Centennial AOTA conference. And, um, I thought that it was just fantastic that, as kind of the centennial speaker, um, he's, his focus was on technology and really kind of walking us through the origins of even what is technology and how do we think about it in different ways and how does it relate to our lives and what is our um, onus as therapists to kind of 
keep up on technology and understand how technology affects our clients um, and help them to use it in many different ways, in, including things like, you know, using a smartphone or navigating a social media, um, because those are really meaningful occupations for many people. And so that's something that we should be assisting with as well as part of our job. Um, so I just think that that's a really great kind of basis to start with if you are um, interested in this area. Thank you, Amanda. Those are fantastic book recommendations. For OTN Corked, we're actually launching a book club right now. What that's going to look like is just a, a series of book recommendations on the blog and also on Goodreads. So if you have an account on Goodreads, you can go ahead and follow me, Miranda Rennie. And then I have a bookshelf for recommendations that we get from guests on the show, and then also some books that I'm reading that are helping me along my OT journey as well. So before we conclude, I want to know what you thought of the red blend you were drinking. It was pretty nice. I think that um, it was maybe a little bit more tannic than sometimes I prefer, um, but I don't mind that. It's also, I just noticed it's a 14%, which is a little bit high alcohol. Um, I usually tend to try to stick to the like 12 and a half percent or so range. Um, so that's surprising, but. Um, well, you know, what better opportunity to have a little bit higher alcohol content when your voice is being recorded to share with the world, right? <laughs> yeah, why not? <laughs> well, now this is actually making me check my bottle. And uh, it looks like mine is 14.5% too. So we're in the same boat on that one. <laughs> yeah, that seems really high. I wonder if that's like kind of part of the new trend with the red blends is that they're they're a little bit amped up on the alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'm going to have to take a little bit of a closer look at those labels before I buy them for the show. <laughs> but overall, you liked it? Yeah, overall, I'd, I'd probably give it a maybe a seven or eight out of 10. Okay, nice. So pretty good. So I was drinking Beauty and Chaos, which was from the Columbia Valley of Washington State, as I mentioned before. This is definitely a drier red blend, which I do tend to gravitate more so towards dry reds. It's pretty bold, fairly tannic, very fruity flavors to it. I would say not one of my favorite red blends I've ever had, but I think it's a pretty good value for what it is. So I'd probably give mine a similar rating, six or seven out of 10 for sure. So it sounds like we picked pretty decent wines. <laughs> yeah. I will say some of, some of the red blends out right now are a little bit too sweet for my taste and this one is not. So I like that about it. Yeah. I don't mind a little bit of sweet, but I do tend to prefer those drier reds for sure. I would say that um, if you like the kind of standard, like a Ravenswood Zinfandel, um, red Zinfandel, this is very similar to that. All right. Well, thank you for that recommendation and for being on this episode. It was really great to hear some of your insights about what it's like to collaborate with other people and just to hear about some of the projects that you're working on right now. Oh, you're welcome. It's it's really fun to share. And, you know, I uh, look forward to hearing from people that might be interested to hear more about this. I'm all, always interested in um, potential collaborators as well. So this is great. And how can people get a hold of you if they do have questions or are interested in collaborating? 
Um, I would say the best way is probably just email. So they can use, they can find me on the Towson website. Um, the Towson University Department of OT and OS also has a Facebook page that's pretty active. Um, but shoot me an email and uh, I'd be happy to get back to you. Fantastic. Thank you. And I will put it on the resource blog on otncork.com so that you do not need to spell out just Kelsky. <laughs> Great. Thank you. <laughs> I just love what Amanda shared on this episode about collaboration, and this is just one of the projects she's working on, so I highly recommend checking out some of her other work. Now, in the intro, I mentioned I haven't been posting as many episodes over the past few months or been on social media either. And so far on OT Uncorked, I haven't spent much time introducing myself, but I wanted to take this opportunity to create a window into what's going on in my life. So since the last episode, I moved across the country to the West Coast and started a PhD program in occupational science. And at the same time, on a more personal note, you know, in addition to the move, I also got engaged and have started the process of getting ready for marriage and planning a wedding. So life has been full to say the least. And getting acclimated to being back in school and living in a new area have definitely taken some time, but I'm happy to say that OTN Corked will continue on a monthly basis, which is a more sustainable pace for me right now. I also wanted to take this time just to thank you for listening to OTN Corked. Uh, seeing your encouraging emails and Instagram messages is so inspiring and has really helped me want to continue growing this podcast. So thank you. And if you haven't checked out otpodcast.com, please do. There are so many great OT podcasts that are enriching our broader OT community, and we really need to keep spreading the word about them. So that's otpodcast.com, and that's organized and run by Brock Cook of the Occupied Podcast. Thank you again for listening to this episode of OT Uncorked. As always, for access to the resources mentioned and to add your voice to the conversation, visit the resource blog at otuncorked.com and leave a comment. If you enjoyed this episode, share OT Uncorked with a friend, leave a review on your podcast player, and hit the subscribe button. Cheers! Cheers!